Good morning, ladies. Happy December. We're glad you're here with us this morning. Let's stand together and worship the Lord. No better word than from your lips. No perfect life than what you lived. No greater gift, no, not one. No brighter star has ever shined. No better hope for all mankind. No higher mind, no, not one.
Let's invite the Holy Spirit to be with us this morning. Holy Spirit, living breath of God, breathe new life into my willing soul. Bring the presence of the risen Lord to renew my heart and show your face each and every day in our lives, and we pray that you will um, give us your word today, help us to follow it, and trust you, even in this season. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. You may be seated. Amen. Thanks, you guys. Good morning. Good morning, Compass Women. How are you? 
It is December 2nd. How many of you started your Advent yesterday? Yes, way to go, Kathy, of course. That's fantastic. So we are here, and we only have one more lesson, you guys. So next week is our last lesson, and then we have our fellowships. So that will be um, an exciting time just to praise God for what he's done. Hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. And you know as Christians, our Thanksgiving is every day, right? And uh, there's a radio, and I don't want to say radio, so forgive me. Um, there's a new program called Real Questions. How many of you have gotten to listen to that with Pastor Mike and Stephanie? It's amazing. And it's now twice a week. So it's kind of like CW in the AM or, you know, PM for the guys asking, um, answering questions. But Pastor Mike and Stephanie do this program on Tuesdays and Fridays from four to five. And it's really amazing because they answer just real life questions, like real situations. And I think you'll join me in knowing that during the holidays with family interactions and <laughs> um, everything that we've got going on, we have more questions than ever how to biblically filter um, different situations that we have. Um, the website is now realquestions.org. And if you go on there, they're all recorded. And it's so nice because Pastor Mike, even if the show runs over, is recording answers in his car. <laughs> and I had looked one up this this morning, and it was a great question, and he answers it, and it's right there. How do I live in harmony with family members who are more fearful than I? So that's definitely a struggle right now, and how we continue to live in faith, not fear, and how we can help family members who are struggling um, from that perspective. And he very quickly, within like three minutes, gives the answer and um, really helps in a huge way. So please, please, please go on YouTube. You can ask questions there. I had emailed Stephanie a couple questions and then she popped them on um, the program and they can be anonymous too. Like you can put, you know, Mrs. S or <laughs> something like that. Um, so you don't have to state your name if you don't want to. But again, questions about a passage, a situation in life, or something that you're about to, um, to go through. So real questions um, is right there for you. And um, the next two announcements are about Christmas. So you can see behind me the beautiful decorations. Thank you, Rose White, as well as her committee. Um, it's so fun to feel this festive. Um, the first one is the Christmas coffee. So with the Christmas coffee this year, it's Saturday. Can you believe that? So we will be here on Saturday and and there is a wait list because, as you know, it's a sold-out event. But typically every year, most people that are on the wait list will end up getting in in some way. I'm not sure about this year, but what I love is that it is going to be streamed online. So please join us at 9.30 on Saturday morning, 9.30 to 11.30. And if you could get on the wait list if you'd like, but please pray. Stephanie will be delivering an evangelistic message. This is an outreach, and we really want you also to take that YouTube link and to send it to people after. So it's not just about the coffee event itself, but please circulate that gospel message that Stephanie's going to present. Of course, Hannah will be doing beautiful worship as well, and it will be quite the Christmas outreach event. So um, pray for Stephanie's teaching as well as really drawing um, people that do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior to this place and ultimately to repentance and faith. So that is our annual Christmas coffee. I hope I said it was Saturday. It is, 9.30 to 11.30. And then on Monday, we have Christmas story time. So Compass Books, if you guys know, this started very 
very small. It was just like a few, a person reading books, you know, to a little crowd of, um, of children. But for two to five-year-olds now in 120 West on Monday, uh, the story time, it's big. Moms, you get free lattes, there's hot cocoa, there's little presents, there's stories, there's music, and they do such an amazing job absolutely free. You don't need to sign up. Please tell people about this program because um, it is just an amazing time of worshiping God. And as you see the signs here with she will bear a son and call his name Jesus, um, we really get to proclaim the true Christmas message um, on Monday at story time at 10 a.m. That's 10 to 12. So, um, and again, moms, you have a latte bar open, so that's fun. Um, so that's Christmas events. And then the women's retreat we've been announcing for a while. How many of you are signed up so far for women's retreat? Yes, ladies, let's get away. I'm completely with you. <laughs> I can't wait. Um, that particular event's early bird discount is only good till this Friday. So Friday, December 4th, the early bird discount is cut off. There's still openings for double rooms um, as well as triple rooms. So please, please sign up for that. Um, again, gratitude, thanksgiving. It's our job as Christians each and every day. And our amazing Carlin and Stephanie will be giving us four different messages, immersing ourselves in gratitude. And with 2020, as you guys know, it's important to immerse ourselves in gratitude, right? 20 things we practice at Thanksgiving, 20 things in 2020 that we're thankful for, and there's so many more than that. But um, please come to the women's retreat. Just grateful that we can get together and sit under the amazing teaching, worship God together. That's at Torrey Pines in San Diego, February 26th through 28th. But again, the early bird discount is up this Friday. So all the way through midnight this Friday, you can um, sign up. So that's really it for the announcements of what's happening here at Compass Bible Church, other than there's a lot more than just that. And um, it's my joy to introduce um, Heather Pace as our speaker. I feel like Heather just spoke, but I haven't been here as much this semester. But Heather did lesson two. Do you guys remember that about the mice? Yes, and turning on the lights and them scurrying, and as painful as that was, Heather said it was a good thing because uh, her food wasn't eaten and so forth, but living in the light is what she um, preached on, and she used a word, you know, really she was encouraging us to, you know, see our sin and, and confess it and make sure that we repent quickly and daily, but what I loved, um, the word that she mentioned, there was a word that she said, after that, bask bask in Christ's forgiveness. And that word just stuck out to me so much, Heather, and I so appreciate that because the Holy Spirit has just kept that word. In times like this, we just get to bask and trust and allow um, that forgiveness just to completely cleanse us, and I so appreciate that. Heather's got the Truth For Women blog, and when you think about her last name, nothing's more perfect. Um, she spurs us on. You gotta keep pace with Heather, man. She's got these four women she's raising in her home. She She's got a baby on board right now, which is amazing. And um, she really is supporting, um, of course, Pastor Lucas um, in all he does in his activities, teaching here for us. And it, her ministry just continues to go on and on. Her Truth For Women has links to her teaching as well. But we love her so much. She is such a sacrificial servant and such an amazing teacher for us. Let's lift her up in prayer as we um, welcome her up. 
Dear Lord God, we just thank you so much for Heather. Um, we thank you for this time that we can open your word. In busier times, Lord, we know that we need you more than ever, the busier we get. And to just be able to um, look at the fact that we need to sacrifice for others and love them in a big way, Lord God, that we need to focus on faith and not fear right now, Lord, and just what you're calling us to do. So I just pray that your word this morning and Heather's teaching truly refreshes us, energizes us, allows the Holy Spirit to work deep within us to uh, be able to apply these truths she'll share with us from your word, um, just continuing today, this week, and through this very busy month, Lord God. We thank you for this place. We ask your blessings on the upcoming Christmas coffee. May you draw many unsaved women here, Lord God, to hear your word from Stephanie, Lord, and just bless all details of that event. And we just lift this time up to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, at Thanksgiving this last week, we got talking about scams and frauds, a very uplifting after-dinner Thanksgiving conversation. Uh, it started because my husband and I had received this package in the mail, and they wanted us to call and give them some information. And so we were wondering if this was some kind of scam, some kind of way to get money out of us. So we were asking the family, did any of you receive anything like this? And no one had, but it got the conversation going. And everyone was talking about the scams that they had encountered or the fraudulent calls that they had had or the ones they had heard of. One person even said that his grandma got scammed out of $10,000, probably most of the money that she had saved. And you think, how could someone possibly do something like that? I mean, who's thinking I'm going to call some unsuspecting lady and get $10,000 out of her? It's really sad, though, to find out how common this kind of thing actually is. As I looked into it, in the U.S., one in 10 adults will fall victim to a scam or a fraudulent kind of something to get something out of them every single year. And of course, with COVID, people are already taking advantage of that. We will see emails or ads, and it'll say something like, you know, free new trial, or here is the free new cure, or the vaccine. All you have to do is give us some information, and then we will give you the information. And then they'll get out of us whatever it is they're trying to get out of us. I got uh, one of these texts about you know, someone trying to scam us during the holiday season, where it said, your package has been shipped. I'm thinking, what package? <laughs> what are we talking about? But then there's that link, right? They want you to click, and then they will lead you into whatever it is that they want to do. Scamwatch.gov said that in 2020, over $132 million has already been fraudulently, fraudulently taken, and that's before we hit November and December. They're often targeting older Americans, um, even children though. 1.3 million children have their identities stolen every year. It's just horrible, right? We hate the thought of scams happening in our midst. But the text we studied this week talks about an even more serious scam, if you will. Someone who says that they are a Christian but is actually a fraud. 
and they show that they are a fraud because they don't have love for other Christians. And you might think, really? I mean, is someone really a fraud who doesn't have love for other Christians? Is it really that serious? But you just have to think back to the last time we studied 1 John in chapter 3, where he said in verse 10, By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. It is absolutely that serious. To say that you are a Christian and to not have love makes you a fraud. Whether you know it or not, it shows that you are a child of the devil. And of course, we want to be 100% sure that is not us. But not only that, we want to be as far away from that reality as possible. I mean, we want it to be so evident, so obvious that we are the real deal, that we are real Christians who show real love. That's exactly the kind of nudge that the Apostle John is going to give us as we move on to verses 11 through 18 today. So if you're not there in the text already, turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. And as you know, he has been talking a lot about how we can know if we have eternal life. And he's talked about love before. He talked about it in chapter 2, and then we're going to look at it in chapter 3, and then he's going to get to it again in chapter 4, because it is that important to God that his people get this. It is one of the most important ways that we can put our faith into action. So 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18 says... For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Clearly, Love is a big deal. Let's just start with the first couple of verses and what it looks like to really love each other as we should. So he said in verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. You might remember that starts very similarly to the last time we studied love in chapter 2, verse 7, where he said, I have an old commandment from you that you've had from the beginning. And in both places, it could be referring to the very beginning, right? When God created mankind and he showed us in the law what it looks like, how he wants us to treat each other, very much about love. Or it could be the beginning when we first heard the gospel, when we first saw what it looked like to love like Christ loved us, and that was the expectation that he then had for us. Either way, it's safe to say that we shouldn't be surprised by God's standard of love. It has always been the standard. And then... John goes on in the next verse to give us an example of what love does not look like. And we see that in the example of Cain. So let's actually turn to Genesis 4, and let's look at that narrative again 
Uh, you probably looked at it this week, but let's look at it, uh, seeing the details about Cain and Abel. And as you're turning there, I'll remind you what happens at the beginning of the chapter. We know Cain and Abel, of course, are sons of Adam and Eve. The text tells us that Cain worked to the ground and Abel was a keeper of the sheep. And then there came a time where they were going to both bring an offering to God. And Cain brought some from the fruit of the ground while Abel brought some from the firstborn of the flock and the fat portions. So let's pick it up in the middle of verse four. So Genesis four, middle of verse four says, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. A lot of people guess as to why this is, why did God accept Abel's offering and not Cain? And Definitely people are wondering, is it because of what Abel offered? Was that a better offering? But the text doesn't actually say that. And we do know that God is pleased by both grain and animal offerings. Uh, But what we do see for sure is something about Cain's character in this passage. So let's look at that. Verse 5 again, it says, But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. It's the first murder in history, first murder of the Bible. But it is not the last time we see this kind of ugliness in humanity. No, we don't have a lot of details. We definitely see that Cain is jealous that God accepted Abel's offering. But before envy even got the best of him, we see that God spoke to him, that God warned him in a sense. He said, you can repent. In verse six, he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? But Cain was not interested. Envy just ate him up and it led to him killing his very own brother. And it all started with this selfish, envious lack of love. Let's turn back to 1 John chapter 3 with this full account in mind. The Apostle John's commentary on the narrative comes to life even more. So let's look at it. 1 John 3, we'll read verses 11 through 12 again. It says, For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. That word there is he, he slaughtered him. He killed him violently. And why did he slaughter him? Did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. So we got Cain and it says he was of the evil one, which of course makes sense. I mean, just think back to verse 10 where it says, if you do not love your brother, you are of the evil one. Clearly that is Cain. That makes sense. And then the text digs further. Why did he do it? He did it because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. So his deeds were evil 
Abel's were righteous, and that combo just brought out this hatred in his heart. We could describe it as envy or jealousy, resentment, selfishness, and a lack of love to say the least. He didn't like that his brother got approval when he did not. He wanted something and he wanted his brother not to have it or at least not have it over and above him. And no doubt what we learn about Cain is repulsive. And the text says, do not be like Cain. And hopefully none of us are in that ultimate sense. But again, we want to think, I want to be nothing like Cain. I mean, if he is of the evil one, I want to have nothing to do with him. If he is the example of how not to love, I want to run from anything that resembles him. I want to run in the opposite direction. But if we are really honest with ourselves, we probably have some Cain-like temptations that we don't run from as fast as we should. Times when we are also envious or jealous or we have some resentment, some selfishness, some lack of love. Times when we don't like that someone else has something that we don't have. Or maybe they're better than us in some kind of way. They've one-upped us in a way. And if we're going to really run from it, we need to be just as appalled at how quickly our own hearts can take on that ugliness that we see in Cain. So point number one, I said it like this, we need to be appalled by our envy. Be appalled by your envy. I mean, it is good to be appalled by Cain when we think of what he did and who he was, but it is more important that we see this ugliness and how it sneaks into our own hearts. And yet it's one of those things that we could almost ignore Right, Because it's not a real showy kind of sin. There's so many things on the outside that we know we need to work on. And this is one of those things that can kind of go under the radar. We can kind of hide it. No one needs to know what you're jealous of or who you're jealous of. And then sometimes it doesn't even seem so bad because what it originates with is sometimes even a good desire. Right? I, I want to have a good marriage like she does. I want to be loved. I want to have godly kids like they do. Or you see that godly woman and you think, wow, I want to be like her. Uh, I want to have an effective ministry like she does. Or it could be the simple things like, I just wish my holidays looked a little more like that family. I wish I wasn't so lonely. I wish I was healthier so I could be at all the church things. It could be good desires. Think of what Cain desired. He wanted to be approved by God. That's a pretty legit desire. And yet it quickly turned murderous because he wanted it at the expense of his brother. His desire, whatever it was specifically, it far superseded his love for his brother and so it became a selfish desire. If you think about it, Cain could have wanted what he wanted and he could have done it right. He could have brought his grain offering and then God saw something in his life that did not please him. God warned him and then right then and there he could have repented. He could have turned and if he didn't know exactly what it was, he could have asked God, you know, what do I need to do? And he could have done the right thing and kept 
Abel out of the picture. But instead, it's like he saw Abel as being in the way of his success. And in the same way, we should not see our brothers and sisters in Christ in the way of our success. If they are doing well, we should praise God. Praise God when we see our sisters doing well. Even encourage them. I mean, Cain could have done that. Abel, I am so glad that God accepted your offering. Uh, Maybe even learn something from him. When we see our sisters doing well, we don't want them to not do well. We just want to join them. Not to compare, not to compete, but just to serve God together. Whatever it is we want. It could be accomplishing something, having something, being known for something. We need to see it as something that is between us and God, not an issue with our sister. So we go to God and we say, here are my desires. These are the things I want. God, what is it you want for me? Is this what you want for me? We need to be concerned if we see a little uh, in our hearts. When we see that a Christian brother or sister has something good, or they experience something good, or they accomplish something good. If we have any negative feeling about someone else's good, we're entering into the realm of envy. And it's an ugly place to be. Just to help you maybe picture a little of what that ugliness would be like. Let's say that I really, and it's true, I really admire those gals that come up here and sing each week. But let's say my admiration has now turned to envy. And let's say that whatever I felt on the inside, you could see in my body language. And so I get the opportunity to get up here and sing, which is not a true story and should not happen. But let's say I did. What you would see is I wouldn't just jump at the opportunity to come up here and join the team. I would probably come up here and I would like push one of them out of the way. Or maybe I would grab one of their microphones. Or maybe you could picture me just kind of wiggling them until they fall off the stage. Because it's this ugly selfishness that says, I want to be seen and not her. It's where you want to push someone down or push them out of the way. And it's about whatever we are envious about. It could be about the way we're seen. It could be about the things that we have. It could be about the way that we look. It doesn't matter what it is. It's this pushiness that wants to get people out of the way. Or here's another visual. Picture me at Christmas with my girls, and I've given them all their gifts, and they have a pile around each of them. And one of them is opening their gifts, and the sister sees it, and she sees something that she wants, but she knows I didn't give it to her. When she sees her sister opening that gift, she starts giving her this evil eye because she is mad, because she knows that her sister got something and she's not getting it. In that moment as a parent, I am looking at her thinking, wow, what a spoiled brat, right? I mean, I've given you all these gifts. You got a pile of gifts around you and you are mad because I chose to graciously give your sister something. It really is this nasty ugliness, even a sense of entitlement where we are not thankful for the good things that God has given us, and we just want what she has. And it's definitely unloving. 
And so when we see the hints of that in our heart, we gotta think, do I want to be like that? Do I wanna be a pusher? Do I wanna be someone who would push someone out of the way or push them down so that I can look more awesome? Or do I wanna be a spoiled brat who is not thankful for the good things that God has already chosen to give me? Do I wanna be like Cain? And of course we don't. We wanna see those things in our life see when they start to sneak in, and we want to be appalled by it, see its ugliness, and then repent as fast as we possibly can. It's a part of our old selfish nature that we ought to be done with. Galatians 5 talks about that. We're going to spend a bit of time there, so I'd love if you turn with there with me to Galatians chapter 5. And it gives us a list of what the sinful flesh is like. And not surprisingly, many on this list are related to this very specific sin issue. So Galatians chapter 5, let's first read verses 19 through 21. It says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Clearly this is an ugly list. But here comes some related to envy. Enmity. Strife. I mean, you could probably say envy leads to some of that. Jealousy, of course, closely connected. Fits of anger, that's what Cain's envy led to. Rivalries, this competitiveness. Dissensions, divisions, and then here's our word, envy. Drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. You can leave that passage open, but just look at that list. I mean, several of them connected to what we see in Cain and what we could see in ourselves at times too. And even just the fact that envy is on that list should say something. We should be appalled at it and then really naturally run from it. And I say naturally because that's not who we are anymore. That's who we were of the flesh. But then it talks about what our life is in the spirit. And that's where it goes in verse 22. Let's read that. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit, who we should be, what we should have in our life is, first of all, love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So we see our old way of life that includes envy, and we crucify it. And we move on to the work that the Spirit is doing in our life. And the first of which, right there, the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's essentially the picture that John is painting. So let's turn back there to 1 John 3. He's basically showing that there are those who are of the flesh and there are those who are of the Spirit. And it's specifically seen by whether or not we love each other. There's those who love and there's those who don't. And in a sense... It talks about how they're at odds with each other. So let's read verses 13 through 15. He says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So we got the lovers of the brothers and we got the haters of the brothers. 
And the haters are even associated with murderers because that's the same kind of heart that you would find in someone who hates and someone who murders. So verse 13 starts actually saying that we should expect to be hated. So that's coming off the Cain and Abel account. And it's referencing the fact that Cain hated Abel in the same way that the world hates non-Christians or hates Christians. And if you think about it, that's actually a very encouraging angle that John is talking from. He's saying, you brothers, family of God, you people that I'm writing to, you should expect to be hated because you are of Abel. You are not of Cain. And isn't that what you'd want him to say to you? I mean, you would rather be, though it's not pleasant, you would rather be in the hated club rather than the haters club because that means you are from God. And then speaking further of what it means to be from God, he says in verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And these words are to us if we love the brothers. We can know that we have passed out of death into life because we have a genuine love for the Christians in our life. And John wants them to know. He wants them to know if they have eternal life. He wants them to be able to look at their life and see this fruit, this fruit of love. Point number two, we should be encouraged when we see this love. Be encouraged by your love. What an assuring reality to say, yes, yes, I do have that kind of love in my life. I see the fruit of the Spirit. It's something God has given me. Yes, it's something I have to work on, but it is a God-given ability. A great passage. You don't need to turn there, but if you want to write it down, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 10. Paul writing to the Thessalonians, he says, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 and 10. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more. So of course, they, like us, we have room to grow, right? We can do this more and more. But it should be so much a part of our life, so natural in a sense, that it's not even like we need to be taught it because it's like we've been taught by God himself. We've learned it from him. It's, it's like a part of our Christian DNA. It reminds me a little of the gender reveal blood test that we pregnant ladies do nowadays. So we did that, but before we did that, you have some time you have to wait to see the results. And as you know, we have four daughters, and so we were very curious. You know, it kind of makes sense. It's probably going to happen again, right? Or are we going to massively switch things up here at the end? So yeah, we wanted to know, but I'll tell you what, I think there were plenty of people in my life that were more curious than I was. <laughs> they would look at me and they would size me up and they would try to figure out whether I was having a boy or a girl. And there's supposedly all these random ways that you could figure it out. Of course, there is that time when you hear the heart rate for the first time and they say that if the heart rate is slower, it's a boy, and if it's faster, it's a girl. And so some friends knew that I was having this appointment, and of course, 
they're asking, what was the heart rate? Like, oh, I know what you're having. Or then there's some really silly ones like the necklace test. If you don't know about that, you do not need to learn about that. It's a tad ridiculous. Or there's the things that they say, you know, oh, you're carrying like this. You're having a boy. You're carrying like that. You're having a girl. Or, or oh, yeah, you like salty food. So you must be having a boy. Oh, you like sweet food. Oh, you must be having a girl. And I'm like, what if I like both? You know, what does that mean about me? Oh, you have headaches. You're having a boy. There's so many different things that people will say. But really, there's only a few surefire, reliable kinds of ways to know what you're going to have. And of course, you got the ultrasound, which is, you know, reliable, but you do hear that at times it can be wrong. And then there's the blood test, which is for sure. It is checking your DNA to tell whether you have a boy or a girl. So we did that test. Someone made us the cake pops that showed us what would be the test results were. And of course, we were shocked when we bit into that cake pop and it was blue. I'll tell you one of the first things I wanted to do is I wanted to get my hands on that blood test. <laughs> I wanted to see how for real was this. And I did. I was able to get on the web and find my health documents or whatever, and there it was. Wow. It really says I'm going to have a boy. I still checked. I went to the doctor. I'm like, are you sure this is really going to happen? <laughs> and, and we checked on the ultrasound. Yes, it's also, yes, seems like the, there it is right there on the ultrasound. Eventually, I had to realize that the evidence was quite compelling. But what was most compelling? It was that blood test. If that blood test said that I was having a girl, it didn't matter how many people said, you're carrying like that, so you must be having a boy, or you like salty food, so you must be having a boy. None of that mattered. It really came down to that one thing that said it all. And I think you could say that the love that we have for our brothers and sisters in Christ could be compared to that blood test. It is a surefire way to know whether our faith is for real. And if we don't have that love, it doesn't matter how many other pieces of proof or evidence that we might bank on. It really comes down to that one thing. The Apostle John is quite clear. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. But if it is there, you should rest in the assurance that your love gives as much as you would a DNA test. So do you have a genuine, real love for the Christians in your life? And I don't mean this very theoretical, I love Christians, like you might say, I love the whole world. Like you got names and faces and people that come to mind. That you enjoy friendships with people who follow Christ. You want to spend time with people who want to obey God's word. You want to come to church because some of your most favorite people are here. And of course, it's more than a feeling 
And we'll look at that at the last couple of verses in this passage. But just on the most basic level, you know that it is action. It is love that is shown. It is a part of your life. It's a part of who you are, showing love to the Christians in your life. And if you see that in your life, it should speak volumes. You should know that God has done a work in you, that he has given you a unique kind of love. We talk about assurance of salvation. It's not, a, it's not about a feeling. You know, I feel like maybe I got this right or a hope. I hope I got this right. It's this evidence that can shine brightly. Where we can praise God, be so encouraged. God, thank you so much for the work that I know you are doing in my life because I see it. I see this love that you have given me that I would not otherwise have. We need to be encouraged when we see this love, knowing God's working in us. So in a sense, what we've seen in this text is it's like John has drawn a line in the sand. And he's saying there's those who don't love the brothers and there's those who do love the brothers. And if you do love the brothers, you should be able to tell it by your life and it should show you that you're on this side. And then as the text comes to a close, we see that we're supposed to do it even better. We, we have the example of Cain, what not to do, but the text ends on the example of Jesus and how we should show this love. So let's read back in 1 John 3, starting just in verse 16. Let's just read there. It says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Where it says he laid down his life, that would be the same phrase that someone would use when they are removing clothing. They are laying it aside. In fact, it's said of Jesus in John 13, 4, he laid aside his outer garments. And that was right before he served his disciples by washing their feet. So he laid aside his clothing to serve others. And then he laid aside his life in order to serve others. And that's the same word for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Lay it aside. And that can sound theoretical again, uh, you know, thinking, okay, yeah, if there is an opportunity to die for one of my brothers or sisters in Christ, yeah, I would do that. But verse 17 talks about what this usually really looks like. Verse 17 says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That is not theoretical, right? No mere word or talk will do. It's deed and truth. It's the agape love that you often hear of. Authentic, compassionate love shown in action. In verse 17, it said the world's goods. That just means your stuff, right? If you have stuff, and then you have a brother or a sister who needs some stuff. How would you have God's love in you if you were just able to go, meh, whatever? If you didn't have compassion on them. I mean, we of all people have an example of what it looks like to love more than any other human being. We have God himself who came down as a human and he sacrificed his life. He laid aside his life for us. And it meant he suffered and he died and he bled and he sacrificed in a very real, tangible way. 
love in action. And that should translate to a love that is within us and it's ready to be shown. So what it comes down to is real basic. If we come across a need, specifically from our brothers and sisters in Christ, we ought to be ready to meet it. That's what love does. Love is available. Love is ready. Love is moved to action. Point number three, be ready to meet needs today. Today. It is not one of those things that you can put off. Not one of those things you can ignore. Not one of those things that you can hope someone else takes care of. It's something that you're supposed to do today. And then tomorrow you wake up and it's another today. And the day after that. It's the kind of people that we are supposed to be. It's a part of who we are. If you didn't look it up in your homework, I would encourage you to. Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11 Great passage, Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11, and God is talking about how he wants his people to treat each other, specifically the needy among them. And he says phrases like, don't harden your heart. Don't shut your hand. Don't give grudgingly. I love this one. Open wide your hand to your brother. And that's the kind of mentality we should have. Okay, you, you need help this afternoon? Sure, I'd love to help you. You need help with your kids? Yeah, I can do that. They need to ride to church? Sure, no problem. Oh, I hear of that financial need? Yeah, I should see if there's something I can do about that. You need someone to listen to? Yeah, I, I'll be there, I'll listen. You know someone needs a phone call, and it might take a while, or they need a visit, and that might take longer. Yeah, I'll put aside my to-do list, and I will be there for that person. I know we can't meet every need. But the text doesn't say that. It doesn't say, if you don't meet every need that there is, how does God's love abide in you? It says, if you have the world's goods, if you have the resources, if you have the ability, if you have something to offer, and then you see that that person needs something that you have, how could you not do something about it? In other words, when there's an opportunity in front of you, what do you do with it? But we gotta be real careful with that mentality of I can't meet every need. Because the reality is we can probably meet more needs than we want to. We can probably give away more money than we wanna hold on to. We can probably give more time than we wanna hold on to. And we probably have more energy to give than we want to give away. We gotta think of the example that we have in Jesus the willingness he had to sacrifice, and let that be our template. John Stott, commenting on this passage, said, God's life does not dwell in a murderer, but neither does God's love dwell in a miser. I mean, clearly Cain didn't have it right, but neither do we, if we are not generous and ready to share whatever it is we have to offer. Let's turn to one last passage. I'd love your eyeballs on this passage with me. Matthew chapter 25. And I'm sure you've read it before. You might have even spent some time in this text. But it's so motivating to read in the context of meeting needs. And it doesn't matter how big or small the sacrifice is. This is super important to God that we are willing to love in very practical 
kinds of ways. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 41. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So what's the difference about these people? We see at verse 35, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And he goes on to talk about those who chose to not meet the practical needs of the brothers. A few observations. Like 1 John makes clear, this practical, brotherly kind of love is so critical that it can be used to separate the sheep from the goats. Those who have eternal life from those who have eternal destruction. Also, just look how simple it is. This is not a complicated test that Jesus is talking about. He mentions things like giving food and water visiting the sick, visiting our Christian family who's in prison, which may not be the reality now, but one day it might. Just giving clothing. That's all John is referring to, too. It's when you have something and someone else needs something, you're, you're the kind of person who would say, yes, yes, I will do that. But there's an additional truth in here that is so encouraging to see how personal God takes our efforts to love each other. He says, whatever you did for each other, it's like you did it to me. Wow. To think that every time you sacrifice for your sister, it's like you are doing it to God himself. He is the ultimate recipient of every sacrifice we make. And that makes me think that no sacrifice is too big to make. He is the ultimate giver of love, and we can never outdo his love. We should love each other more and better. Thinking of that line in the sand, I mean, we're very used to thinking of it in terms of Christian and non-Christian. And then even as we've studied 1 John, we've started to see it's, it's those who are in the light and those who are in the darkness, those who are of life and those who are of death. But as we get to this text, we also see it's those who love the brothers and those who don't. It's those who know the love of God and they are compelled to show it. But what a sweet place to be that it is where we are surrounded 
by brothers and sisters in Christ who are learning to love like Christ loved them. It says, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. And it's a message that we are going to keep hearing over and over again. And Lord willing, we will live it out better this week, loving each other well, showing that we are the real deal by faithfully showing real, sacrificial, authentic love. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for the love that you have shown us in Christ a love that we barely understand, a love that we so don't deserve, but you graciously gave it to us. God, remind us of that love daily, and I pray that it would spur us on to all kinds of love and action, especially to each other, to the family of God. Pray, God, that you would show us practical ways, that you would help us to see the need in front of us and see how we can meet it. I pray that no lack of motivation will keep us from doing that. Even our tiredness and our busyness and all of those things, that you would help us to work past those things, to love each other well. But God, how encouraging to see you as the recipient of all of those actions. God, help us to remember that you care about it that much, that it's like we are doing it to you. And God, help us to fight any of the sin that comes in our hearts, the things like envy and jealousy, that prevent us from loving well. Help us to be nothing like Cain in that way. Help us to think of Cain and just to be disgusted by that and want to repent as soon as we possibly can. Help us to love to the core of who we are, to love each other well. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.